Welcome to the Daily Real Estate Investor Podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Smelser. The Daily Real Estate Investor Podcast is the shared journey of building a real estate investment property business from square one. Join me as we learn together how to conquer the real estate game to reach financial freedom. Together, we will learn from people in all areas of real estate and business in our personal trek towards escaping the rat race. Be you. Do the work you love. Play the long game. Hey guys, we're back for another episode of the Daily Real Estate Investor Podcast. Today I've got Gabe Hamill out of Eugene, Oregon. The guy is killing it. He's built a portfolio of 175 pads and units um, from mobile home parks, small to medium-sized multifamily deals, single families, and mixed-use commercial. And here's the awesome part about this. He's done the lion's share of this through seller financing, putting little to no money of his own in the deals. Super creative strategy. And um, this is a strategy that you can use to build your portfolio. And um, Gabe's going to share with you how he went about doing this, how you can do the same. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode and really going to learn a lot. Without further ado, let's bring Gabe in. Today, we've got Gabriel Hamill on the show. Gabriel, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, man. My pleasure. So, um, Gabriel Gabriel is in Eugene, Oregon. Um, I don't think I've ever been to Oregon, but I really want to go there. Is that, is that just, is it like gorgeous there? Like, what do you, you do a lot of outdoor stuff? Yeah, a lot of outdoor stuff. It's a, it's a beautiful place. I grew up here. I don't think I appreciated uh, how amazing the place was until, um, you know, I went out and saw the world and, and. There's some other beautiful places in Oregon. Oregon's definitely one of those places. That's awesome, man. In my mind, you know, I'm just picturing like green fields and mountains and stuff. So I need to go to Oregon. It looks yeah, a like a beautiful of, place. Yeah, come out, come out this way. A lot of a lot of trees, a lot of green. Nice. Well, um, so Gabriel's making some major traction with his real estate investing portfolio. He's got 175 units, and uh, I think the most amazing part about this is he's done this with seller financing. And so this is a strategy that's available to anyone um, if you're willing to be creative and willing to go this route. So uh, Gabriel, let's dive into your story and tell us how you, you know, how you did your first deal and how you started using seller financing to take down deals. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I'll go back a little bit, even before I got started in, in real estate, uh, a couple, a couple years after high school, I had read rich dad, poor dad for the first time, uh, sometime, sometime around 2002. And it really just opened my eyes to the possibility of financial freedom through real estate. You know, I know that book has impacted a lot of people's lives and, you know, for me, it was, I had graduated high school in 2000. I had joined the Army National Guard before that. So actually my senior year of high school in 99, um, and just wasn't really sure what I was going to do. You know, school wasn't my thing. Academia was not my thing. College was something I was interested in. So when I picked up Rich Dad, Poor Dad and read that for the first time, it just, it's, I mean, it's the first book I read word for word, cover to cover. I mean, I used to be embarrassed to, to say that, but it was the first book that, you know, now I'm proud to say it. I mean, I was 18 or, or sorry, I was like 20 years old and, you know, I'm thinking, gosh, like, this is what I'm going to do. Like, this makes sense. And yeah. it's not a how-to book, but it's it's definitely like a mindset uh, around the possibility of financial freedom. And so I was dead set on, hey, this is what I'm going to do. Um, and and I don't know how. And so, um, yeah, shortly after reading that book, uh, 2003, I, I was deployed to Iraq. I spent 
uh, a year, a little over a year in uh, Kuwait and Iraq. So it's 20, uh, 2003 and four. And I'm telling all my friends there, hey, I'm going to come back. I'm going to build this real estate empire. And they're like, Gabe, you're an idiot. Uh, you know, yeah. you, you have no you have no education. You were just living in your friend's attic for $100 a month. What makes you think that you can do this? And, <laughs> um, you know, I was like, I don't know. I don't know, but I'm going to do it. And so uh, 2005, I bought my first house. And, you know, if your listeners are familiar, 2005 was right during the subprime lending. So I had no job. I had no money. And the bank gave me a loan. It was 100% uh, financing. I did, the, I did the same thing in 06. 07, they asked for 5% down. So my first three deals were bank financed properties, but I had I really didn't have a job income anyway to um, to truly qualify for the loan, but the banks were giving me loans, and I thought, this is this is easier than the book. But this, <laughs> I can just do this once a year, right? And uh, I was house hacking. I didn't know the term back then, but you know, I, I rented out two of the bedrooms in my first house and uh, you know lived for less than I could anywhere else. And then uh, 2008 came around. By 2008, uh, I, um, you know, things started things started changing with with lending guidelines. And so, um, also backing up a bit, in 2006, I had also opened up a nutrition store, and it really wasn't making money. So by 2008, uh, I decided I was going to shut my store down. My my first son was born in 2008, and I kind of went, oh shit, what what's what do I do? And I went back to the bank and I said, hey, I want to buy another house. And they said, too bad. Things, things have changed. You you need 30% down. You actually need to have income, a down payment, a job. You have to have all these things to qualify, and none of which I had. And so I I, I kind of freaked out. I went out and got a, a minimum wage job. I was working in a, a special education class in a high school as a, as a teacher assistant. And literally three months into this job, and, and, and believe me, my heart looked out to these kids. I have an older brother that went through the the special education program. Um, but this was not my dream job. It's not what I was wanting to do. So, you know, three months in, I'm literally cleaning shit out of a stall that some kids threw everywhere. And I, I start thinking about my goals and, uh, you know, and, and realizing if, if I don't do something about, uh, you know, my goals in real estate, I'm going to end up doing this for the rest of my life. And so I set a goal that year to replace that income, uh, which seemed very obtainable, very achievable. Cause it was, it wasn't a very high paying job. And, I, I found four units. It was two duplexes side by side. It was a seller financing deal. I found it on Craigslist. Uh, you know, that whole year I spent every night just searching Craigslist, you know, seller financing, owner financing, owner terms, because I knew that was the only way I could buy a property at that time. I, the banks said they wouldn't give me a loan. And so uh, that first deal I did, those four units cash flowed well. It replaced my income almost to the dollar that I was making at that job. So I finished out that year. and uh, stop, stop working. And that was, that's the beginning of my, my real estate journey. Super cool. Yeah. I've, I've noticed that for some reason, Craigslist tends to attract a lot of advertisements for owner financing. I don't know why that is, but it's a really good place to find owners who are willing to do owner financing deals. So how did you, um, how did you structure those deals? Yeah. Um, so it, you know, I think what, what I found with, with seller financing with the owners that want to do it. And, you know, one thing I realized after I'd done a few of these deals um, is that the sellers that want to carry financing, they want to carry financing. So I'm not educating or convincing or talking uh, a seller into it or um, explaining a new idea to them. After I'd done a few deals, I realized these were sellers that already wanted to carry financing. 
And then I also realized that a lot of these sellers, um, really all these sellers are investors themselves. So I'm not, I'm not buying someone's primary residence. I'm buying a, a rental property that is, you know, a headache more or less for them. And a lot of times they have an idea of what they want for that property. Um, and, and that can be sometimes a price that they're stuck on. Sometimes it's a down payment, sometimes it's a specific interest rate. But what I found instead of spending my time and energy, um, trying to educate sellers on what seller financing was, I just tried to position myself and have conversations and meet sellers that already knew what seller financing was. That way the conversation was, Hey, what kind of terms are you interested in? And I would keep it that casual. Uh, if they were saying seller terms, owner terms, owner carry, seller financing on their ad, I would just call up and say, Hey, what kind of terms are you interested in? What kind of terms are attracting to you? And then I would just, I would just shut up and let them, and let them talk and, and share as much as, uh, you know, they wanted to share and I would listen and, if I could make the deal work and give them as much as they want or give them something, you know, if it was a price they were stuck on and I could give them that price and that was a fair price, but they were flexible on terms, I would, I would work it that way. You know, sellers that were stuck on interest rate, um, you know, really I needed the, I needed the properties of cash flow. I wouldn't buy them if they didn't cash flow. So, uh, you know, if it was an interest rate thereafter, maybe it was the, the price or the down payment we'd manipulate, um, you know, and, in 2009 through 13, they were all no money down deals because I didn't have money. And so for that, it was finding sellers that, that wanted the monthly income that didn't care as much about the down payment. So for, for me, it was out of necessity. I had to find buyers or sorry, I had to find sellers that didn't care about the down payment. Their interest was uh, the other portions of the deal, the, the price and the interest rate. Very nice. So, and that was going to be one of my questions. You know, it seems like in today's environment, a lot of the seller financing deals that are out there want you to put a down payment down. But you you said oh nine to thirteen that it was no money down on most of these. Um, yeah, or yeah, mo- correct. Were most of these rented or most of these vacant when you would take control of them? Yeah, they were all every property uh, with the rare exception. Most almost every property I purchased with seller financing. Uh, are they are occupied, but in most cases, these are properties that have been poorly managed, or they're under rented, or there's some deferred maintenance. So, I base my numbers on what the property is currently doing. I want the property to cash flow if if I were to come in there and do nothing. But I like the upside of a poorly managed, under rented property with some deferred maintenance. So, a lot of times, these properties, you know, that the that period of 2009 through 13, these properties fit that criteria. So, a lot of times. The, the tenants just weren't great tenants and they were under rented. And as a tenant moved out, I would go in and get the property cleaned up and I was able to get the rent up to, to market rent. And so it was just kind of a slow, uh, a slow process. But I, at that time, I couldn't afford just kicking everyone out and having, having these vacancies. I needed that cash flow. And then that turnover was an opportunity for me to go in there, clean those up and really increase the rent and ultimately increase the value of those, of those properties as well. That makes sense. Um, you know, and these, yeah. Go yeah. ahead. Oh, and I was just going to say, and then, you know, these sellers, it was, uh, you know, they had owned these homes for uh, a long time prior. So, the, you know, the, the advantage to them, it created this new level of passivity, right? They were, they were happy to get that true mailbox money, be in the bank and not having to deal with the tenants, not having to deal with the turnover. A lot of these sellers are, you know, mom and pop owners that have, that have not, typically hired property management. So they're doing this all themselves. Amazing people. They're just burnt out. They're tired. They're, 
you know, they're, they don't want to be maintenance person anymore. They don't want to be landlord. They don't want to deal with, uh, you know, screening tenants and all that. And so they're just, they're burned out and it's, they're just a different, uh, cycle in their real estate in, in their real estate life. Nice. Let's, uh, let's get, let's get granular. Let's, let's talk about the details. Uh, so, so someone who's never done this before can understand how you go about doing this. So let's say you've discovered someone on Craigslist who's willing to sell or finance a deal. There's a tenant in there that's, that's paying. Okay. Walk yep. us through, yep. walk us through how you typically would structure these all the way down to like, you know, the term, the interest rate, things like that. Yeah. The, the first thing I would say is every, every seller has a different need. And so, you know, early on these, these properties, I would say, you know, most interest rates were slightly above uh, what, what bank interest rates were. But I would structure these with interest-only loans, uh, typically, interest-only payments. And I did that because I wanted to increase cash flow. And I was aware that during those first several years, you're not paying a lot toward principal anyway. And so I was really focused on cash flow. But again, it, it kind of came down to what are the seller's needs? You know, a couple of years in, there was a couple in there, you know, that were in their late 70s, and they were willing to carry on a fully amortized 30-year loan. And... At first, I'm thinking like, hey, I'm not putting a date on their life, but I'm also, you know, statistically, they're not going to probably live to 110, maybe, but <laughs> probably not. And so, right. So as I had conversations with them, what they explained to me was, hey, when we passed away one day and they had set, they had set it up in the trust, we want our adult children to be able to benefit from this income coming in without handing over a property that they don't know anything about real estate there. We don't want to give them a house. We want to give them the paper asset as. Um, as the note holder. And so what I found is every seller wanted something different, right? So it's, I, I, I stopped assuming that every seller, you know, wanted uh, such and such interest rate, such and such down payment um, and, and a term length. Cause the first couple deals I did, they carried for only a couple of years, but then they asked, as we built that relationship relationship, they didn't want, want to be paid off right away. And they said, Hey, can we extend this? And so, I think first off, it's just important to to not assume and to listen to what the seller's needs are, and then structuring it structuring it around that. Can I give them what they want and make the deal still work for me? Uh, you know, another scenario guy a guy was seventy five and he said, "I I don't have family. I don't, you know, I I want to make sure that I have a steady income for the next fifteen years." And so I hear that and I structure the terms of that deal around what his needs are. Now sometimes it just doesn't it doesn't work. You know, sometimes. Uh, you know, the seller wants a large down payment and, um, you know, it's a crazy interest rate and a crazy price. And then, you know, sometimes you got to walk away from those deals. But I find that sellers are fairly realistic. You know, it's usually one of those things that, that they, that they need. And a lot of times you can give, you can give them that thing, that price or that interest rate and still make the deal, the deal work. Um, the, the, the terms themselves are all over the place. I mean, you can do interest only, you can do uh, direct principal, you can do anything in between. I've, I, I did a deal once where, the seller was very specific on a dollar amount they wanted. They wanted eleven twenty five a month on the note, and so our our note there was no interest rate written in. It was a essentially an interest only payment for eleven twenty five a month because that's the dollar amount that they said they need each month. And so uh, you, you just have so much flexibility. Where with the bank, they're telling you the terms. They say, hey, here's the down payment we need. Here's the interest rate. Um, you need to qualify in all these ways. Uh, and with seller finance, it's truly as creative as the the buyer and seller can get and are willing to get. Sure. And that's, and that's really the beauty beauty of it. It creates that win-win. Very cool. 
So um, if you put this thing on interest only, obviously you're not paying down the principal. Uh, what's your yep. what's your strategy? You're you're getting good cash flow. What's your strategy long term? Is it is it to hold that thing a couple years and then go refinance out to a bank and put it on a thirty year? Or what's your strategy with those? Yeah, it, it really depends on the property. So all the properties that I bought at you know 2009 through 13, I did end up refinancing those in 2014, and and there were a few reasons. So and I and I had that conversation with those initial sellers uh, ahead of time because I wanted to make sure that that they knew that there was going to be this payoff. Uh, you know, so with those in 2014, the market was on my side. I had several years to get the rents up as far, so they appraised out really high. Um, you know, they all appraised out 70% or higher loan to value, and I was in them no, you know, no money. So to buy those traditionally, you're talking 30% down essentially on every single one of these properties that I didn't have at the time. And so it's kind of creating that, you know, creating that forced appreciation. And so it just made sense at that time to refinance. Um, you know, the interesting thing about that is one of the, one of the women that I paid off, she said, Hey, what am I going to do with all this money? And just very casually, I said, "Hey, you can lend it back to me." Uh-huh. She laughed, kind of thought I was. I kind of thought I was joking. And two months later, called and said, "Hey, were you serious about that?" And she financed uh, a, another deal for me. And nice. so I think, you know, you know the important thing too, just how important relationships are. That relationship didn't end when I when I bought, you know, the first property from her. She had sold me a couple other properties, and it didn't it didn't end when I paid her off either. We had built that trusting relationship. Sure. You know, uh, most of these sellers are in their, you know, 60s and 70s. They don't want to actively go invest in a new deal. They don't want to go put that money in the stock market. They, you know, they want that that passive income. And so um, just because they got paid off doesn't mean doesn't mean that that relationship ends. And so, um, you know, some of the some of the more recent deals I've done, the sell the seller financing terms are more long term. I may refinance in the future. Um but I always structure more. It works today. I don't. I don't put myself in a position where um, the terms force me to be in a position where I have to refinance in order for the property to cash flow. So and that's that's very know, yeah, it's very smart. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say that the refi will typically give me better terms and more cash flow. But I, I make sure the terms support the property when I buy it. Sure. So it sounds like on these owner financing deals, you were you're buying them, even though you're using owner financing to do so, you're still buying them at a really good price point because when you went to refi, you had 30% equity or more. Um, have you ever run into a scenario where you do an owner financing deal, you go to refi out and you know, you've know you got 10% equity or something and have to, had to come out of pocket at that point to close it? I've, I've never had to. Um, That's awesome. You know, and I, Yeah, and, I, and a lot of the reason is you know, and, and sure, it's it's a possibility, right? That something doesn't appraise out, and you can't you can't always, um, you know, you, you don't always know what the market's going to do when the, when the time comes. But it's it's a reason why I like to have that value add component, and it doesn't always have to be a huge cash outlay. I mean, uh, a great example is a four unit place I bought. It was on, on campus. I bought it based, you know, on a dollar based on what what it was currently renting for, but the the rents were almost half of what market rent was. And so when I got rents up to market and I had a commercial appraisal done, it appraised out two years later at, you know, almost double what I paid for it. So That's almost 400,000 more because they were based on what the rents were doing. I didn't need that big an appraisal or that, you know, but I knew that that was the upside. So yeah. it still worked with the, the 
the financing I had in place. But with the rents up, I knew, I mean, I had a bank with this particular new uh, property, the bank that I was working with said, hey, when you get rents up to market, let me know and we'll refi it for you. And so I knew that was, I knew that was out there. So I like properties that have that, that have that upside. And I think under rent is a big one, you know, because um, when you, when you move into commercial style properties, they're not, banks aren't looking at comps, you know, comps are, you know, based on, of course, that everything else is selling in the area, but on the, on the commercial side, you know, they're looking at what is this, what is this property producing? What's the, what's the NOI on this property? And if you have the rents up, that thing's going to be worth a lot more. And then, and, and banks like to see that and they understand that a good bank will understand that. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Well, so, um, this is basically kind of a backdoor way to do the burst strategy, right? Like the traditional burst strategy is, you know, buy using hard money or your own cash, you know, rehab the property using hard money or private money or your own cash, and then get it rented out, then refinance it and move on. You know, what Gabe's doing is buying it with other people's money, which is, is the seller. Seller's holding the, doing the financing not using any of his own money to put down, you know, the thing is already rented. Typically when the tenant moves out, then he takes that opportunity to get the thing fixed up. He does his value add there and then goes and refinances it at some point on down the road and has been able to pull off the burst strategy. Great. Because he never had to leave any money in on that refinance. So there's a number of ways to use this burst strategy. And this is like another one that that's really creative and a really great way to get started. And and really take control of a lot of assets with without putting your own money down on it, which I love. It seems like one of one of the one of the downsides to doing this could be reserves, right? If you load up on a bunch of properties with none of your own money and you don't have money in reserves and you got repair issues, I guess you could run into trouble. How how have you handled like you know the reserve side of all this? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I was uh, I was speaking at an event in, in New York this last winter, and someone asked me the same question. They were saying they said. Hey, when you when you first did your first deal, how how much did you have in reserve? When I started, I I had no reserve. But uh, and I'm not and I'm not saying I recommend not having reserves because if you can have reserves, you know, I mean, in real estate, things can happen. But the way that I looked at the deal was, I didn't have money in the deal. There's all sorts of things that could go wrong. But had I, you know, with all the scenarios that could go wrong, for me, it was riskier not doing the deal. I had an opportunity to do a deal. Or not do a deal. You can talk yourself out of any deal. I mean, there's there's so many what ifs that could happen. So now, do I have reserves? Reserves, absolutely. But starting off, I didn't have big cash reserves, but I also didn't have a bunch of cash into these deals, so my risk was minimal. The worst case scenario, and it, and it, it never it's never happened. But if I were to default on a loan, those sellers were going to get the property back, and those sellers were going to get the property back typically at at, at higher rents. And in, in better conditioning, you know, better condition. And so, um, you know, the, the risk of not doing the deal just outweighed all these what ifs that could happen in, in real estate. And it, you know, I, I, I took the risk, I took the chance, and you know, those properties have have paid me back, you know, multiple times over the years. And so, um, you know, again, not recommending not having reserves, but if it's the difference of doing a deal and not, do the deal. Yeah, yeah, and the strategy you took, you you did a deal, you didn't have enough money to to go put 20% down, so you figured out a way to go ahead and take control of a cash flowing property. You took control of that property using seller financing and then you piled up the profit into reserves, right? And then 
started doing exactly. other deals. And as you as you get more deals, you got more cash flow, more profit coming in, you build that reserve account up, which sounds like that's exactly what you've done. And like you know, to your point, like you don't put money down on it. And the worst case scenario, the thing, you know, if you can't make your payments, they're going to take the property back. Well, they already own the property to begin with. So, um, yeah, that's, that's cool, man. I love it. So let, let's, let's keep, yeah. let's keep rolling. You talked about how you got your first uh, few deals done. I think this is like t- 2013, you know, let's walk us through how you ended up with 175 units. And I know you've got single family, multifamily, mobile home parks. Let's talk about how you ended up with, with those different type properties. Yeah. So, um, about my most recent purchase, uh, you know, I was at mobile home park and, you know, the, the way that I met this seller was I'd reached out to him 10 years, about 10 years prior. And I reached out to him because simply because I admired his work. He's a developer in town, uh, was building these beautiful buildings. And I just wanted to know his, his story. Um, and you know, I reached out and he graciously, uh, met up with me and kind of shared his story. And he's been you know, building these beautiful buildings. And so when I reached out to him, I, you know, it was simply because I admired his work. I wasn't trying to get anything from him. I wasn't trying to sell, sell him anything, but we'd stayed in contact throughout the years um, and just kind of keep an eye on what each other were doing. And he had, he'd asked me about a single family home, if I was interested that his friend was selling the town over. And I said, you know, I'm not, I'm not looking at a single family right now. I'm really trying to focus on value at multifamily and value at mobile home parks. And, uh, you know, this is the guy that, has, uh, you know, probably several, I think a couple thousand units, uh, you know, a high level of sophistication as a developer, but his time and energy really wasn't focused on this, on this mobile home park. So he said, yeah, I, I have a mobile home park. And I said, would you be interested in seller finance? And he said, yeah, absolutely. And, um, I think it just goes to show like the value of the relationship. You know, I had no idea that guy owned mobile home parks. And even though he was a, he's a sophisticated investor, his time and energy spent somewhere else. So he understands the value to carrying the financing on this. So it gives him a level of passivity from that like that particular property. He, he doesn't have to deal with anymore, and he's he's able to focus on his his bigger project. And there there was an opportunity for me as the buyer, um, and because we had, you know, we had that relationship, uh, the terms of the deal were were really sweet. You know, we walked away from the table, uh, you know, both happy. It was a, it's a true win win. And I I found that, um, you know, with in, in some ways, uh, you know, these, these owners of the larger properties, I, I met a guy recently who sold a $40 million building with seller financing. And it was simply because the sell, you know, he understood the advantage of being the bank of financing the deal, he had a beautiful building and, and wanted to sell it with seller financing. He didn't want to be cashed out, didn't want to be in a position where he had to go put that money somewhere else. And so, uh, you know, it goes, it goes back to, Hey, what, what does the seller need? What do, what do you and the buyer need, and can you can you come to terms that work for for both people? In a lot of ways, it, you you can. I, I've never walked away from a deal feeling like I won and they lost. It it truly is a win win scenario. Very cool. Yeah, yeah, I love that. That's so important when you're dealing with a seller in real estate is understanding where they're coming from and what they need. If you can get to that point, you can do some really creative deals. And end up closing deals that you wouldn't have closed otherwise if you were just trying to approach it from one angle. You know, if the seller needs eleven twenty five a month and you want to give them eight hundred just because, you know, they're they're not going to go for that. But if you could say, yeah, I'll give you eleven twenty five, but we'll structure it this way, which is an advantage to me. You know, they'll go for it. So it's like understanding what their pain point is and trying to come up with a solution for that. That's the smart way to go about real estate investing. That's why you've been able to pull all this stuff off. 
So where was this uh, this mobile home park located? Yeah, it, it was about a, a half an hour south of where I live. And then uh, earlier earlier in the year, I had also purchased uh, another park 30 minutes south of there. So uh, two mobile home parks, one one about a 30, 30 minutes south and one about an hour south of Brian. So, so uh, both, in, both in Oregon? Both in Oregon. Okay, yeah. very yeah. cool. And how big were these parks each? Yeah, one's 38 units and one's 43 units. Nice. What's the... You know how are your parks structured? And there's, I know there's, um, you know, a lot of people want to have, you know, own the lot, have the tenants own the homes, and just get lot rent and that kind of kind of thing. How have you gone about, you know, running your parks? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and you know, for the most part, you know, I'm the guy that wants to own just just the dirt. However, with both these parks, uh, there are some similarities that they both had um, eight stick-built structures uh, or six, uh, eight stick-built uh, units on the property. So uh, my first part actually had nine. Sorry, I had an eight-plex, like a stick-built eight-plex, and then a, a cottage. So I can't, you know, I, I own that. That's not something I can sell back to the tenant. Um, in addition, it had eight park-owned homes when I bought it, and I've sold a couple of those homes back to the tenant. One of them paid cash. One of them I'm actually seller financing the deal for because ultimately I don't I don't want to own the home. I want to I want to own own the land, um, and that's and that's the case with the with the second one as well. The the park owned homes on the second one were in a lot better shape, and I haven't sold those back to to any of the tenants yet. But that will be will be part of the plan. And and then the other thing with both these parks, the, the value add opportunity was both parks were being ran okay, but they weren't they weren't advertising aggressively for open paths. Um, and there was the, the value add opportunity of both parks had not had rent increased in uh, four and a half and five years. Um, you know, one of the, one of the parks wasn't billing back utilities where the, you know, the sewer bill was 15,000 a year and, you know, split up over, uh, 43 tenants over 12 months is a very small, uh, amount for the tenants to pay. They're still below market rent. And, um, but that's a $15,000 swing. Uh, of net profit. So there were just, there was all these little small, small decisions and, and things to do to increase the value. Um, you know, one of the parks had years worth of leaves covering three pads. They were just sitting there covering three pads. So those pads couldn't get rented. I mean, it was $600 to, you know, to get those leaves removed. And now there's three pads that, you know, rent for four fifty dollars a piece. You know, it, that's, that's worth the three, you know, the, the $600. And nice. it's just seeing seeing these small value add opportunities that can increase cash flow and overall the value of the part. Love it. So, so when this owner offered the seller financing on the park, did he want you to put money down on it or did he do 100% seller financing? Yeah, I did put money down. It was, it was actually, it was actually, a uh, one of my most favorite negotiations. So, uh, I, I, I went to his office and again, this guy, you know, developed, beautiful a class you know some riverfront stuff uh he's building in in a big project a kind of high-end retirement facility right now um so i go in his office we we chat for maybe i don't know 10 15 minutes about everything everything in life but nothing real estate really related and then he pulls out a yellow piece of paper um and writes down uh down payment price term length uh, interest rate and uh, you know, literally these couple lines and he said, all right, what's, what's most important. And he, he kind of written out a, a price that he, that he thought, which was, was a fair price. Uh, 
he wrote down a down payment amount. He, he wrote down 70,000 and, um, you know, and he said, which one of these are most important to you? And I said, I would like to, you know, to hold on to a little bit more of my capital and be able to put back into the park and into some future deals. And he crossed out that 70,000 and wrote 30,000. So I immediately thought, well, gee, I just saved $40,000 right off the bat. Um, you know, for him, he didn't need a large down payment and he didn't want a large down payment. That, that would have been taxable money in that year. And so we, because we had that relationship, he didn't feel like he needed that security of a, of a large down payment. And then in addition to that, you know, the prorations and um, uh, at closing came to about $15,000. So I, uh, when I came to the closing table, I ended up coming to the closing table with um, less than $15,000. And that came to just under 2% down. And it, a 200% cash on cash return. And so it was a, it was a great opportunity, great term. And it was a very easy negotiation because he knew what, what he wanted and needed. And I knew what would work for me. So net of operating expenses and debt service, you're, you're taking home 30 K a year off that thing. Yeah. So, that's um, awesome. correct. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome, man. About, well, about. so, so when he crossed out 70 and wrote 30, did he, increase the price? Did he change some of the other details or did he just give you 40 grand he, off the down payment? Yeah, no, he, he, he took a little off the, the price. Um, he took a little bit, you know, the interest rate for him was what he was really stuck on. He actually came down slightly on that, but there was an interest rate that he, that he really wanted. And so, um, for me, I, I look at my cash on cash return. And so that was important to me. And so, um, you know, I wasn't going to try to beat him up on price or on interest rate. The, uh, the interest rate and price supported the the deal, and you know he he did take a little off of both of those, but but ultimately the down payment, you know, coming in lower made the deal as sweet as it was. Yeah, very interesting. So this is a, a super interesting story. Let's let's talk about how this how this turned out on down the road. So you bought this thing for only fifteen k. You know, it's netting you net of debt service and operating expenses, 30K a year of profit. So that's an extraordinary deal. How much money did you have to put into fixing the park up after you took it over? Not a whole lot. So I, I bought that park. I haven't owned that park even a full year. And so, um, you know, there's some things that I'm going to do to add value to the park itself. The, the stick built structures, you know, haven't been paid, painted in a long time. There's a couple of, uh, of the stick built units that, have, have had some maintenance that needs to be done, but there's not a lot, there's not a lot of capital, you know, uh, intensive things that need to be done. I mean, the, the stick built structures, like I said, need painted. They don't have gutters on them. Uh, there's some signage at the park that would, uh, that needs to replace and, and things like that. And this is the same park that had, you know, the leaves over three of the, um, three of the pads. So it's really just cleaning up, cleaning up the park and, uh, you know, and then putting good property management in place. And so, you know, that, that 200% cash on cash return, you know, that's, you know, making that down payment back in that first six months, that's great. There's also some, some value add opportunity, uh, with management. It just wasn't being, um, really advertised aggressively. And so filling, you know, filling those empty pads, there's a lot of empty pads. And so, uh, you know, that was my number one priority that I, that I talked to my property manager was about like, Hey, let's clean this up and, and fill these pads because ultimately, um, you know, we want we want income coming in from these pads. They're just sitting here empty, and so um, that's actually been the largest value add opportunity with 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 both my parks is getting the getting the pads filled. 
Yeah. Um, so how, how it, hard is that? How difficult has that been? Have you, have, are you mostly getting people to bring in their own homes? Or are you having to go out and buy used yeah. homes and then try to sell them to the tenants? Yeah, it's interesting because, um, you know, mobile homes can be expensive to move in or out. And um, there are some, there's some RVs that have been in there and they're not transient RVs. They're not where they're there for a couple months and they leave. Both these parks have some RVs mixed in. Um, and some of these, some of these tenants have been there 20, 20 plus years. And so we started advertising as, as RV pads and the pad rent for RV in these parks are the same as pads for mobile home space. But the difference is it's way easier to bring in uh, an RV. And so uh, we've been successful with property management, uh, getting these pads filled with, with nice RVs. Interesting. And are most of these RVs, yeah, are, yeah. are most of these RVs staying or are they, are they leaving every so often or how's that working out? Yeah, they're staying. And kind of what, what made us think of it is that both parks had a couple RV tenants and they had been there for a long time. Like they're, they're, they're dialed in, they're set up there. Like this is where they live. This is their community. These aren't people that are, that are up and leaving every year and coming back or traveling. They, um, they've just chosen to have an, you know, an RV rather than a mobile home. And it's a That's lot so easier wild. and cheaper to, to move, to, to, to move that in. That's so wild. I've never, I've never thought about that or heard of, you know, people just taking their RV to a park and putting it there and staying there for years. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, one of the parts, I mean, there was a tenant that they've been there for 20 years. That's wild, man. In, 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 in an RV. Yeah. I wonder if they ever get the urge to just crank the RV and take off after being there 20 years. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it kind of builds up around it. Like it doesn't look like they're going to go anywhere. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. That's so wild. Um, that's awesome. You were able to take control of this, um, using owner financing. So what's your strategy with this? Are you going to hang on to this for a few years and then try to refi and pay this guy back? Is he want you to hang on to this long term or like, what were the terms on that? How'd you structure that? Yeah. So we have, uh, a carry gosh, right off hand. I, I, I'm not sure. I, mean, I think it's a seven year, a seven year term. Um, you know, the, the, it works right now the way it, the way it sits. I may refinance that one down down the road, but probably when I get closer to that seven year mark, unless unless there's just some good bank financing that that comes along, I'm not in a hurry. I'm not in a hurry to refinance that one. Sure. Very cool. So I know you also own mixed use commercial and some small multis. Have you used the same strategy on all these? Yeah, I, I have used, um, you know, private money and hard money, but I didn't for about my first 10 years in. And so, um, you know, I, I don't syndicate, I don't raise capital, um, and I, I, I rarely partner. But I did for a short period of time partner with someone that they were very hands-on. They had a construction crew. Uh, they were really good at, you know, taking the worst of the worst properties and cleaning them up and, and rehabbing them, getting them rented. So I've I've had some strategic partnerships with uh, people that bring something else to the table than I do. So with this particular uh, partnership, you know, we, we bought a bunch of small uh, single family and, and small multifamily, a lot of bank owned property. I would put the deals together. I enjoy the, you know, the analyzing and the negotiation and that portion of it. And he was very good at just hands on. He could take the worst property and, and, and get it to a rentable condition. And so, uh, me and this, this guy, we did this for a couple of years together. Um, and then we sold off, um, a lot of our, a lot of our smaller stuff. And then we bought, 
you know, we bought a couple mixed use uh, buildings together too that that had that big value add, that big value add component. And then both of us individually do do our own thing for the most for the most part. Very cool. So the thing that I mean, the thing that I love about you know using seller financing to take control of real estate assets is that you know you can do it creatively and it takes very little money out of pocket. You know, you kind of let the market offer up what it's willing to give you on this and you kind of go with, with what's there, you know, that most retail sellers, if you're on the MLS, they're wanting to sell their primary residence, aren't going to go for this. But, um, but you know, you find, you could find some investment owners. It seems like it's mostly investment owners who are doing this that are willing to do this and, and really create a great deal for yourself. So tell us like, I mean, it sounds like seller financing is a really awesome way to go about, you know, buying real estate. Tell us some of the downsides, yeah. like what can go wrong with this? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, I think with any, with any property, you know, things can go, things can go wrong. Um, you know, I think it's just, I think it's just hedging your investment, you know, like creating these low and no money down deals is a hedge on that investment of, of the things that could go wrong. I've never bought a property that I regret buying. You know, I, I just haven't. There's no property. There's some that have been a little bit more of a headache than others, but there's never been one where I'm like, man, I wish I didn't. I wish I didn't buy that. You know, I think, I think the opportunity is there. I don't think there's anything really more that could go wrong than any any other property. Um, you know, and in a lot of ways, um, it's easier in the sense of like I've never had a seller, um, you know, tell me that they're gonna. They, they, they've never verbally agreed on a deal and then backed out. I've never had a seller. Uh, you know, they don't usually ask for a ton of information. I've never had a seller ask, Hey, can I walk the property, uh, you know, with you after you, after you close. So for the most part, as long as you're doing your job and paying your mortgage to them, you're making your payment to them. They're happy. Um, would you say, would you say seller financing is easier than traditional bank financing? I do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're dealing, you know, it becomes less transactional and more just relationship based and face to, you know, human to human face to face. I mean, you, you mentioned at the beginning of the, the show that, you know, it seems like a lot of these are found on Craigslist and it's, and it's true. And, and, and they're a lot of times off market and not all just Craigslist, but, you know, some are listed and some are just through, through building relationships. But I have found that the typical seller, you know, these are men and women in their sixties and seventies. They do own multiple properties. And they don't want to sign in the yard. They don't want to put on the MLS. They don't want to, you know, clean the property up and get right. it retail ready. And they, they don't want to do all those things. So, to, you know, to put a Craigslist ad saying, hey, selling this property, this neighborhood, interested in seller financing, that's what they want to, they want to do. They don't want to alert their tenants. You know, they don't want, sure. uh, you know, a bunch of people walking through the property. And they'd rather, you know, as an investor, work with work with other investors. They know yeah. that the the homeowner is looking for something very different. You know, they're they're not looking for someone that that, you know, wants this uh, you know, perfect house and and making an emotional decision about it. They're trying to, you know, create this, this business transaction around it. And that's you know, and that's as an investor working with other investors, it, it makes the conversation a lot easier. I love it. I love it. So what's your goal with all this? What are you what are you trying to do? Are you trying to grow to a certain number of pads and units or certain cash flow number or what what's your why? Yeah, yes and no. So I mean for me it was it's it's about it's about time freedom. I mean that's that's my thing. You know, when I you know, going back to when I read Rich Dad Poor Dad, I originally thought, you know, I mean I was young, I read that book and I was like, I'm gonna be rich. I wanna be rich. I want you know, I, I didn't I didn't come for money. Um, you know, and and so it's like I thought, Hey, I I wanna be financially free. 
I want to be wealthy. But really, as as I started, you know, in my journey, I realized it wasn't about the money. I didn't want to. It wasn't. I didn't want to go swim in a you know a, a pool full of money. I, I wanted my time. And so I've been really strategic with with how I've structured my business to allow me to to do all the other things in my life that are important to me. You know, my family is the, the most important thing to me. My health is very important to me. Um, you know, being able to travel. Uh, you know, being able to to con, you know contribute and give back to the community in different ways. Like I value my time more than anything, and so. I'm not looking to build something that that takes my time away. It's it's why I've chose, you know, to to hire third party property management rather than um, start my own property management company. I don't want employees. I've never had employees. Um, you know, so I, I really keep keep that in mind. So first and foremost, I think about hey, how it, with any business decision, you know, or any really really any decision, in my life, how will this affect my time? How will this affect my time? You know, with or away from my family? How will this affect my time on all these other areas in my life? I like being able to, you know, work out in the middle of the day. I like being able to, you know, get on this podcast with you in the middle of the day. You know, that's important for me. Being able to go, uh, you know, I'm hiking with my kids later. Like that's important to me. I'm not going to, you know, make decisions. It's going to take so much of, of that away. So, um, you know, financial freedom has allowed a lot of that. But in my mind, actively is always my my time freedom. Because I, I get in a lot of conversations with people and, they're building that time, that financial freedom, where they've actually created that financial freedom. And then, as I dig deeper with them, they, they start to they start to talk about why they created financial freedom in the first place. And it was never about the money. It was always I wanted more time with my family. I wanted time to travel. I wanted time to to take care of my elderly parents. It was all these other reasons. The, the financial freedom was just their path to to get there. And so, you know, going forward, yes, I, I uh, you know, I, I love the real estate game. I enjoy it. I do I, yes, I plan on you know doubling my unit count. I have I have some, you know some different goals around that. And I as long as I enjoy it, I'm going to keep doing it and keep growing and building. Um, but I'm not going to build something that takes away from these other areas of my life that are important. I love it, man. Time freedom is so huge for me as well. And you know we we have a lot in common. You know, I, I graduated high school in 1999. I I wasn't as crazy about school either. I, I once I got into grad school, I started really enjoying some of my entrepreneurship classes and real estate classes and that kind of thing. But a lot of it was a struggle for me because I couldn't I just couldn't quite connect the dots on why I was spending time learning some of the things I was learning, which didn't seem very applicable to what I was going to be doing right, later, right, you know. Yeah. And so yeah. and I'm also like I've I've built my life out to have time freedom. I don't have employees intentionally. And that allows me to be able to spend time with my kids, to do the podcast, to invest in real estate, you know, and like, I'm always trying to, to feed the asset side of the investment stuff to buy me more time freedom, you know? And that's like, that's such a big deal to me. And I think a lot of times, I think most people would probably say they want time freedom to spend time with their loved ones and on their hobbies and things they love, but they, but they spend almost all of their time trying to to make money and then they they blow the money on junk that they don't really need to create time freedom and then they it's just a, a negative feedback loop you know so it's like real estate offers this opportunity to create a positive loop where you can get yourself out of that that bind that you're in where you can actually buy yourself time freedom and that's what it's about to me yeah no you that's 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 awesome that's amazing no i mean you 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 nailed it and that's and that's what you know what i wanted and have been able to create for myself and when I've had conversations with people, I realized, you know, like I started, I started just 
you know, get on social and preaching about time freedom because I realized it was a conversation that wasn't being had. Like I would get in all these conversations around financial freedom. And every time I said, well, why? You know, even asking my own self that why, it always came back to, to time. And I think people, you know, they go into it with this idea, just like you said, that they want that time freedom. But it's also really easy because I've seen really successful entrepreneurs and, and business owners just create a monster of, uh, you know, of a business that actually takes so much time away from them. And that's fine. There's guys out there that like, they truly love that grind. Like they're going to work 80 hours, 100 hours a week, no matter how much financial freedom they have. And they, that's like what they like doing. I'm just not that guy. I, I don't want to be the 100 hours of always having to, to work. I'm, um, I'm right there. And I feel, I feel, yeah. And I think a lot of, and I think a lot of people are from the conversation they've had a lot of times it comes back to time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, do you have a couple books you would recommend? Anything you're reading that's really made a big impression on you, or anything you think everybody should check out? Gosh, I mean, so many books. You know, of, of course, uh, you know, Rich Dad Poor Dad, and some of the other books in the in the series, um, the Cash Flow Quadrant, and uh, Retire Young, Retire Rich. In that series, was you know b- big impact. Um, you know, the Compound Effect. Uh, you know, Think and Grow Rich. Uh, you know, gosh, not, not too long ago, listen to, uh, David Goggins can't hurt me. I think that's a great book around, around mindset. Cool. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Very I mean, cool. I, I usually have an audio book in my ear or a podcast in my ear, just always, always trying to keep learning. Nice. I'm right there with you, man. Um, well, great, look, tell great. the audience where they can connect with you and how they could get in touch with you if they want to reach you. Yeah. The best place to reach me, uh, would be Instagram, just Gabriel R. Hamill. If you search Gabriel Hamill, you'll find me. Um, I mean, I'm on Facebook, and my website is HamillInvestment.com, uh, H-A-M-E-L Investments.com, and uh, there's a little bit of information about what I do, and then there's you know links to different podcasts. I'll put the links to this podcast on there when it airs too. Um, and yeah, and, and and you know, I'd say reach out. I mean, I love when people reach out. I you know I do a lot of 30 minute uh, Zoom calls with people that that just want to ask questions and learn more about seller financing or about, about real estate. Um, you know, that's, that's one way I like to contribute and give back is just have that one-on-one phone call with, with anybody that, that really, really wants to. And I'm, you know, I, I will respond to anybody who, who messages me through, you know, Instagram, Facebook, or by email. That's awesome, man. Well, Gabe, this has been awesome. Thanks for sharing your story. And I love what you're doing with seller financing to build, you know, what you've done to build this portfolio. And um, thanks for for sharing all your tips and tricks. And I know this is going to really benefit a lot of people. No, absolutely. I appreciate you having me on. I look forward to connecting with, connecting with you more in the future too. And I hope your listeners find, find this valuable. Absolutely, man. All right. We'll catch you next time. All right. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please connect with me on Instagram at Daily Real Estate Investor or via email at josiasmelser at gmail.com. My new book titled Dream It and Build It, How to Crush Your Real Estate Investing Goals is out. You can get it either in digital or physical format on Amazon. Once you've read the book, please leave me a review. Tune in next time for another episode of The Daily Real Estate Investor as we both join in our financial freedom journey. 